Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, if you want to look at Ephesians, I'll be reading from Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. As I described last week from opposite starting points, Jews and Greeks converged on the notion of a nearly unbridgeable gap between heaven and earth. As Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, Jews would seek signs, but would not assume that they encounter God in reality. And Greeks search for wisdom, but this wisdom is beyond the world. And so to appreciate, I think, what Christ is doing, and that's the picture in in Ephesians, he's closing the gap. He's bridging heaven and earth. I think it's necessary to feel both the immensity of the separation and then recognize what it is that Christ has done. And this passage, what is often called Christ's harrowing of hell, is not simply to render empty this place of emptiness. The ascent and the descent is going to be a permanent occupation of these places. He's going to make his presence known, an abiding presence, where that was considered an impossibility. And so what does it mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended. So I think it's the picture of Christ going to Sheol, going to death. And if it's not misunderstood, he's actually going to hell or the place of the dead. That place that separated heaven and earth. I mentioned last time that in death, in Sheol, It describes again and again, there is no thanks to God. In Sheol, who will give you thanks, God? No one. In Psalms 115, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. This is Isaiah. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. And the pit is just another way of describing Sheol. Hades, the realm of the dead. These make God inaccessible in Jewish understanding. It's a realm from which no one returns. Remember David's prayer about his lost child. I'll go to the child, but the child shall never return to me. But Christ, and that's what's being pictured here in Ephesians, Christ returns. He died, he ascended, He ascended from the grave. He ascended into heaven. Death no longer has control over life. 
He has freed those who have been held captive. You know, they've been held captive by death. That's pictured in both Romans and Hebrews through fear of death or the picture of this place of shadows. And this seemingly unbridgeable gap between heaven and earth, I think marked by Sheol, marked by the pit, is bridged in Christ. This is no longer the controlling factor in our lives. And I think one way of getting at this is to understand how Christ closed the gap. And so I'm about to get technical on you from the Old Testament. In the pictures of the Day of the Atonement, Yom Kippur, what's the priesthood? What is the sacrifices about? And so we might say that as far removed as the goat for the Lord, you remember the goat for the Lord? This is the spotless one, the one representing life, the goat dedicated to God. As far removed as that goat is from the goat Azazel. And this goat is the sin-bearing goat. And so they would take the two goats. Aaron, you know, is told, take the two goats. And on the goat of Azazel, send it into the wilderness. It's going to be the, the sin-bearer. It's going to remove death and impurity as far as possible from the holy of holies. You know, this is the tabernacle. The temple's not yet built. And so that far between these two goats... That's how far God is from death. Leviticus 16, it says, Aaron shall take the two he-goats and set them before the Lord at the tent of meeting, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then they're going to draw lots. Aaron shall place lots upon the two goats, one marked for the Lord and the other for Azazel. The goats are identical, by the way. And that's part of the requirement. They have to be identical. And with this casting of lots, a different vocation is assigned to each goat. And so one is placed at the center, is going to be taken into the Holy of Holies. And the other is going to be led out into the wilderness. The Azazel goat is taken into this place of desolation. And so they're moving in opposite directions. These identical goats that have a unique destiny. But they are together then working the work of purgation or undoing sin. And their roles are interrelated. So while they're offering the goat of the Lord, the Azazel goat, it's left standing at the entrance of the tabernacle. And all of the emphasis then is on the purification. And of course what we're describing is the two things that Christ has done. There is this act of purification, of offering blood, you know, for the priest, the, the people, the Yahweh goat. I think to understand what the Old Testament sacrifices are about, we go back to Mount Moriah. Remember, Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah. And actually, Moriah is going to be called Yireh. The Lord is seen, or the Lord will provide. Remember Isaac asked, well, Dad, where's the offering? And Abraham says, oh, God will provide. When, when we think of the story of Abraham, Abraham offering up Isaac, it was his own possibility for life that is really being negotiated here. Abraham's not asked to slit his own throat because he's as good as dead anyway. And Sarah is as good as dead. 
Isaac represented their possibility for life that I will make your name great, God says, in the face of death. That's what Paul says in Romans 4. And what is taking place with the offering of Isaac is what is always taking place in the ritual sacrifices of the Jews. When the high priest or the priest ritually applies blood to the temple furniture, to the holy place and the holy of holies, he's ritually applying the blood of Isaac as the antidote to death. The corruption of death is the problem. The life that God gives is the solution. And it is God then who gives the blood, which is life. It is he who breathed life into dust in Genesis. He who brought life out of Sarah's barrenness. Abraham and Sarah are described as good as dead in Romans, that her womb was dead and he was as good as dead. Hebrews says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Who is the true Isaac? True Isaac is Jesus. Who is the true sacrifice? It's Jesus. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. It is his own offering, it's his own life, that here is God providing life, and that's the symbol of sacrifice. In other words, I think we often get this backward. We think that what is being offered is death. It's not death that God wants, it's life, and God provides life through Christ. That explains the goat for the Lord. But what about this Azazel goat? There was a demonic power, first of all, associated with the wilderness named Azazel. And it became a marker then of wasteland, a place of beyond, beyond the pale. And so after the high priest has used the lifeblood of the Yahweh goat to purge the sanctuary, you know, death is purged, actually. That's what's being purged, sin and death. And then there's the attention to the fate of the, the second goat. And it says, when Aaron has finished purging the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. And then Aaron places his hands on the heads of the goat and he confesses over it all the iniquities of the Israelites, the deliberate wrongdoing, the idolatries, the murders, the cruelty, the violence, hatred, you know, all of human evil is put upon this goat. All their sins that they've committed. And they will be symbolically placed on this goat. And then the goat is led to this inaccessible region. Identified with the abyss, with Sheol. You know, that's the, the point of Azazel. We're going to get rid of this thing. We're going to get it out of Israel. And so the same person in this case Aaron he is first of all the conduit of the selfless life of Abraham and Isaac and now all of the weight of the world is transferred through Aaron to the goat to the Azazel goat and then the goat is taken there's actually two words here midbar the polar opposite of holiness and then 
Gezira. Gezira is an inaccessible region, a land cut off. If we compare it to Eden, Mount Zion, and then this place of the pit, Sheol. Why is it important that the Azazel goat carry the sins into the wilderness? The blood of purification in the Jews' understanding was unable to fully eradicate sin. And the only solution was to drive the sins out of the promised land. And so evil is banished to its place of origin, in some way death, this nether world, the wilderness, the enemy territory, out beyond where no harm could be done. What I'm saying is the Azazel goat is not a sacrifice. Azazel is not an offering. An animal bearing impurities would not be acceptable as an offering to God. In some of the most prominent modern interpretations of atonement, the two goats are seen as a single symbol and we get a violent death. You know, Mount Zion becomes the place of penal substitutionary violence or the mountain of scapegoating violence or even a kind of place of patriarchal abuse and oppression because we're misunderstanding the meaning of these sacrifices. And so the imagery of the Yahweh goat is active. It's associated with drawing near to God, making possible entry into the Holy of Holies. You know, the high priest is representative of what Christ will do. The other goat is passive. It's led away by another. The first is turned toward the Holy of Holies and the second toward the abyss, toward the wilderness. They need to be kept separate. And this is the way the writer of Hebrews describes it. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ has been offered once for all, there is the first goat, in order to bear away the sins of many, there is the second goat. It's the one exhibiting the means, the other the results of the atonement. The picture in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. How do you have life? It's through the life of Christ. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, Christ enters the holy place once for all and then in 10.12, look what it says. It says he sat down. You know, the priest never sat down in the Holy of Holies. The idea here is Christ is staying. This is a permanent arrangement. The high priest in this case pours himself out. You know, think of Philippians 2, 7 to 8. That he did not count the quality something to be grasped, but counted himself a servant even unto death on a cross. This is what's happening in the temple. It's the blood of Isaac that is sacramentally then purging. You know, this is the true blood of Isaac is the blood of Christ. You know, this is the picture in John, but in the New Testament as a whole, that the cross is the pinnacle of glory for the same reason it's a scandal. It's here that God's incorruptible presence is found in the place of corruption. 
It's like heaven is found in hell. It's like life is found in the place of the dead. At the most corruptible and contemptible of moments, the incorruption of God shines forth in that place that was normally thought to be closed off to divine presence. And that's why I think in John, you know, the hour of glory, this full revelation, the hour in which Christ dies on the cross. Maybe we could say the incarnation is complete at the cross. This is the way Jesus describes it in John, that his labor is finished at the cross. You know, we might read that labor or work, or we might read that as the giving birth. And the corruption of death was a bridge too far for Jews. And that explains the scandal of the cross for Jews, but it also then points to the chasm that Christ bridge. The ultimate barrier between God and humans has been bridged. And like Abraham, then, we have life in the midst of death because Christ has defeated death. And thus, the New Testament pictures Christ bearing the good news even to Sheol. So in conclusion, look at 1 Peter 2, 18-19. This is the passage that is often connected with the harrowing of hell. 1 Peter 2, 18-19. For Christ also suffered once for us, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. That is, we die with Christ. We go symbolically to Sheol. And we're raised up. We conquer death. We're cleansed. The dirt from the body, it says, is removed. The pledge of clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Sheol itself, death itself, Hades, hell, is in submission to him. A lady wrote to uh, C.S. Lewis once and said, you know, Professor Lewis, do you believe in heaven? I have a hard time believing in heaven. And Lewis writes back to her, we have some of these letters preserved. Actually, one of the sad stories is that when C.S. Lewis died, his brother just went out and started burning everything burning all his letters and his manuscripts. And a, a friend of his came by and said, what are you doing, Warney? He said, oh, I'm just burning his stuff. He said, oh, please, you know, if, can I have the, the letters? And so he saved this correspondence, and this is one of the letters. But Lewis points out to his correspondent that the ancients, really, even the, the Jews, they had no hope in heaven. And perhaps it was because there was not really a heaven fashioned yet. He says the New Testament always speaks of Christ not as one who taught or demonstrated the possibility of a glorious afterlife, but as one who first created the possibility. He is the pioneer, the first fruits. 
The man who forced open the door. I think that's a beautiful picture. That Christ is forcing open the door and letting everyone in. Now with Jesus' completed work, Lewis says, he has made a way, prepared a home, made many mansions for us. And so we understand that Jesus, he went to Sheol to preach to those who came before the cross. God made a home. This is Psalm 68, the passage we begin with. God made a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks? The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. You have ascended on high. You have led your captive, your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. He's filled heaven. He's filled Sheol. He's filled all things. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.